Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. The Bowery Boys, episode 119, Crossing the Verrazano Narrows Bridge. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hello there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. Happy New Year, Tom, and Happy New Year to our listeners. Happy 2011, Greg. Now, we have to be specific about this, because people might be listening to the episode, you know, a year from now. Or uh, 200 years from now. 200 <laughs> you, you, years from now. You never know how these things will just penetrate New York history themselves. Right. So you never it know. might be put in some sort of podcast time capsule. <laughs> Tom, last we met, we did probably the most New York Manhattan-centric of subjects. That was the history of Times Square. So I thought to start the new year, we would actually take a break from Manhattan for a little bit and tackle one of the most prominent and largest landmarks that exists outside of Manhattan. And that would be the bridge that connects Brooklyn and Staten Island, the Verrazano Narrows Bridge. I find it fascinating because I think that the Brooklyn Bridge is perhaps the city's most popular bridge, I would say. The most picturesque. But I think the Verrazano runs a close second. And some people, of course, prefer the Verrazano to the Brooklyn because it's so sleek and elegant and, and modern. The Verrazano Narrow Bridge is sort of New York's Golden Gate Bridge. In fact, it's longer than Golden Gate Bridge. And when, it, when it opened, it was the longest suspension bridge in the world. Taking over the title from the Golden Gate. To this day, it's the longest suspension bridge in the United States. We're about to discuss how this particular bridge came to be, because it's really a classic tale of a mad project that was, of course, born from the mind of Park Commissioner Robert Moses. And I'm really happy we can kick off 2011 by going back to Bob. We haven't plunged back into a true Robert Moses story since our Robert Moses podcast many, many episodes ago. So I'm glad to touch base with him again. Being a Robert Moses story, no surprise, this is also the story of a major upheaval of a very prominent Brooklyn neighborhood. And even the name of the bridge itself has caused a bit of controversy. But we'll get to all of this and more when we cross that bridge. The Verrazano Narrows Bridge.
Well, that lovely music was obviously from the film Saturday Night Fever, in which the Verrazano Narrows Bridge plays a very significant part. It's almost like another character in the film. I will talk about that a little bit later. Can't wait. But for now, let's situate where the Verrazano Narrows Bridge give you a few introductory facts to get this ball rolling. As we... I think hit pretty strongly in our intro. Um, this is a very long suspension bridge, the eighth longest in the world. Did you know, by the way, that the longest is in Japan and four of the others that are larger are in China? The Verrazano Narrows Bridge is 4,230 feet, the, the main span of it. Between the towers. Between the towers, yes. It carries 12 lanes of traffic along an upper deck and a lower deck, almost 200,000 people a day. And the bridge is, of course, a toll road on top of that. It really is this architectural marvel. And you don't sort of really get that until you're really kind of close to it. You can see it from everywhere because it's, you know, it's immensely right. tall. From all five boroughs. Yeah, those towers are about the size of 70-story buildings, right? right? So Nearly you can, 700 feet. So you can see them from almost everywhere in the city. The bridge is so long and it has to cover so much space that you know that they actually had to figure out the actual curvature of mm. the earth uh, to be able to plan and build this thing. I mean, how many times a day do you think about the curvature of the earth when you're walking around the city, right? Happily, I'm not planning bridges. So the tops of the towers, of these two towers, are actually two inches further apart than they are at the bottom of the tower. So there's this, like, very, 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 very slight, imperceptible slant wow. to these. It manages to actually be aesthetically pleasing without being ornate or very intricate. It seems very streamlined and sleek. It's also very influenced by the weather. In fact, during the summer, the lower deck is 12 feet lower to the water because of the contractions of the cables. I find wow. this incredible that it goes up and down throughout a year. Now, of course, Brooklyn has many bridges, of which we've talked about many on this podcast. Staten Island, actually, by the time the Verrazano Narrows was opened in 1964, already had three bridges for, for automobiles, but all of them linked to New Jersey. That would be the Gothels Bridge that linked to Elizabeth, New Jersey, the Outer Bridge, which linked to Perth Amboy. Now, both of those opened in 1928. Did you know that the Outer Bridge, Tom, mm -hmm. is actually named for a man named... Outer Bridge? No, it's the Outer Bridge Bridge? It's, it's named for Eugenius Harvey Outer Bridge. Oh, my word. What a, <laughs> what a convenient name or inconvenient name for De a bridge. Depending, yes, exactly. So it's technically the Outer Bridge Bridge. Technically, it would be the... I think we just call it the Outer Bridge since it just, it just right. seemed like you're stuttering. But the Outer Bridge is named for Mr. Outer Bridge, who was the president of the Port Authority at the time. Now, the third bridge, I should mention, is the Bayonne Bridge, which links over the Kilvan Coal there, and that was opened in 1931. But those span very narrow bodies of water, you know, near the Jersey Shore. Sure. Yeah. The Narrows is a little bit more challenging if you're going to do something like a bridge. So to back up even further, perhaps as furthest back as we've ever gone on this show, yes. what exactly are the Narrows? Should we go back, say, 13,000 years? <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> Making my head spin. Well, just imagine that Staten Island and Brooklyn were not always separated by a body of water. They were connected, in fact. So then, you know, they're plates shifting and such, and bodies of water forming. And, and this narrow strait of water, the narrows, formed at about this time. It really, if you imagine an hourglass, it separates the 
upper and the lower New York bays. And this narrows is the main passageway from entering into the lower New York Bay into the upper New York Bay. It's the gateway to New York mm-hmm. Harbor. And ships crossing the Atlantic headed for Manhattan have to pass through this strait uh, with Staten Island to the west and Brooklyn to the east. Now, who was Verrazano? That was not, of course, a body of water or <laughs> geological feature. That... And, and many people actually mistakenly refer to this body of water as the Verrazano Narrows, mm-hmm. but it's, it's not. That's the bridge. And so this just is the Narrows. And this is somebody, like, we're going back even further than Henry Hudson. Like, we should go back to Giovanni de Verrazano, who was an Italian explorer. Uh, he was either born in a village south of Florence or in Lyon in France, in 1485, and he came over working for King Francis I, or François I, I think is a much much sexier way of saying his name, came over in 1524, checking out the eastern seaboard of the United States, trying to figure out how to get through to the west coast and to the Pacific Ocean. He landed in Cape Fear and headed northward along the coast, looking for that passageway. Eventually, he hit uh, New York Harbor in 1524, anchored at the Narrows and was greeted by Lenape Indians. And they were on the Staten Island side, I believe, On the right? Staten Island side. He stayed there for a while, and then he, he gazed upon the, the mouth of the Hudson River, took it for a giant lake, then continued sailing on to Long Island and eventually came home to France in 1524. So because of his miscalculation, he could have been the one that discovered the Hudson River and all the fertile wealth that it would offer, but instead... Right, it, it could it be the Verrazano, Verrazano River. Right. On a subsequent trip, Greg, in 1528, he actually sailed down to Florida and the Bahamas eventually onto Guadalupe, where he was killed and eaten by the native inhabitants. And that was oh, the end of Verrazano. Dear. So the, the bridge is named after someone who met that unfortunate fate. Yes. And in the centuries that passed then, you know, many New Yorkers grew up never even hearing the name Verrazano. In many ways, he, he's become a forgotten name in the city's history. He was a bit of a side note for a long time, right. until we'll, we'll get to a little bit later to how his name got applied to this particular bridge. Before we sort of plunge into how the bridge was thought about and constructed, I should mention just some of the few failed attempts or, uh, you know, aborted attempts at trying to bridge this waterway right here, because there's all sort of different ways in which to do it. You know, for most of its existence, and I have a whole podcast on this on our, as part of our transportation series, were the series of ferries that Mm. inhabited the coastline of Staten Island. What's important to remember about Staten Island in particular um, is just where it sits. It's really was seen in a lot of ways as a hub between New Jersey, between New York, and between Long Island. And that's why there was so much buildup along the ports and all these ferry services around here, because it would usually just be a waypoint. In 1888, this is when the Staten Island Railroad, there was just a sort of a self-inclusive railroad on the island, was acquired by the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad, the B&O. They actually did build the very first small bridge that would cross over to New Jersey. It was a simple swing bridge that would be used for this train. With the union of Staten Island with the other new boroughs into New York City, 
there was this fascination with building a tunnel that would go to Brooklyn and would connect to the Long Island Railroad and would connect to this brand new system of trains that were, were being developed there. Right. While this was going on, I mean, that sounds like kind of an incredible feat, even for 1900. But keep in mind that over in the Hudson River, which is, you know, just a wide of body of water, yeah. the Penn Railroad is Tunneling away underneath yeah. and building their tunnels, some of the first tunnels underneath that. It would only be about 10 or 20 years later with the first massive expansion of New York's subway system that you had people really talking about this as a possible idea. One of New York's most important mayors to the subway system, as if, if you recall, it was a man named John Hyland. He was the mayor from 1918 to 1925. During his tenure, there was a massive excavation project. They were actually beginning to build these tunnels that would connect Staten Island and Brooklyn. They were started in 1919. This Brooklyn-Staten Island tunnel would be two parallel train tunnels that would go underneath the Narrows, one in Bay Ridge, is where it would start, and one in Fort Wadsworth, about the same areas where the Verrazano Narrows is today. Unfortunately, they ran into money, they ran into some problems, so they had to patch up these holes. Mm. Apparently, you can still find the entrance, at least on the Brooklyn side, to one of these holes in a park called Owl's Head Park. I'm not sure if it's very easy to find, but these holes are sometimes referred to as Highlands holes, because kind of sarcastically, it varies. Yeah, because they're like, oh, you couldn't have. This would never have worked. Now, the first idea for a bridge came around 1926, and it came from a man named David Steinman. Very interesting character, a very influential bridge designer. He was actually born and raised in Manhattan, and grew up even underneath the Brooklyn Bridge. Obviously, wow. with stars in his eyes, if he's going to grow up and be a bridge designer, and he wanted to, of course create his own bridge for the city that he was born and raised in. He didn't really do that. He built a lot of other famous bridges throughout the United States. He had an idea for bridging the Narrows with a bridge that he called the Liberty Bridge. It would be longer than the Verrazano Narrows Bridge. It would be 4,620 feet. Which is incredible. Like, absolutely. Like, he was a dreamer. It had these Gothic cathedral-like bridge. A little bit like a hybrid of the Brooklyn Bridge and the Golden Gate Bridge, quite honestly, had flashing beacon lights and even these <laughs> nests of gigantic bells that would ring out. A carillon. Yes, to quote, peel out anthems of liberty to those who enter through this nation's gateway. He actually organized a consortium of private interests, and they separately petitioned Congress for approval for this. Because something like this, of course, would have to go through the federal government, too, because it was such a massive... Yeah. Yes. Infrastructure project. And, and of course, there are, at this time, there's army bases right. on either side here. And it's a security concern, too. If a bridge like this were to be, say, destroyed, it would blockade the entire mm -hmm. harbor of America's biggest city. It was being very positively received until one congressman actually stood up and opposed the project, and essentially the bridge charter was never brought to a vote. This particular congressman, by the way, he loved the idea of this bridge, mm -hmm. but he disliked that it would be so completely in private hands, and he thought a public project should be something that should ma be maintained by the government. And, and who was this congressman, Greg? Well, you know, he was an up-and-coming politician, a representative from East Harlem. His name would be Fiorello LaGuardia. So, of course, flash forward a few years in 1933 when he would become elected mayor of New York City. And what's interesting about LaGuardia's administration as mayor was that he was, as you said, very pro-bridge, and he was pro-construction projects. He had a, a, a master plan, and he would develop one with his 
parks commissioner, who we'll get to in a second, but of parkways and highways and bridges and tunnels, all trying to alleviate the traffic congestion that was really besetting New York City at the time. Also, he thought that a giant bridge, say, over the Narrows, would be a wonderful public works program to put New Yorkers back to work, because we're talking about building during the Depression at this point. And it would prove to be one of New York's largest public works that were done in the century. However, during the Depression years, there simply wasn't the money for this project, and so it didn't really move too far beyond the planning stages. However, by the 1940s, a new force had gotten behind the Narrows Bridge Plan, and that would be, of course, Robert Moses. The Parks Commissioner. The Parks Commissioner, who at this time was also the head of the Triborough Bridge and Tunnel Authority. Oh, right. He had 19 jobs um, (laughs) by this time. (laughs) And so as head of Triborough Bridge and Tunnel, he had this master plan. He was building bridges all over the city already, and he saw the Narrows Bridge Project as a necessary connecting link in his entire highway construction project because it would connect the Belt Parkway, the Gowanus Expressway, and the Staten Island Expressway. And he thought pretty highly of I mean like he thinks highly of all of his projects but this one certainly he said quote there's going to be a bridge pretty soon the bridge of my dreams it's going to be the most important single piece of arterial construction in the world unmodestly and right he wasn't afraid of hyperbole but Robert Moses in order to even make any progress here needed all kinds of authority uh, granted to him by the feds by the state and by the city Now, regarding his relationship with the federal government at the time, I think we (laughs) have discussed this in several different podcasts, including the Robert Moses podcast. He had fought with the Roosevelt administration over his proposed Brooklyn Battery Bridge back in the 1940s. Which would have been this bridge that literally would have cut through New York Harbor from the tip of Battery Park to the shore of Brooklyn. Right. And, And he was pushing forward with it. Eleanor Roosevelt, in the column that she wrote at the time, criticized the bridge, saying that the proposed bridge would be a blight on lower Manhattan skyline, and then the Roosevelt administration chimed back that it would also be a security threat, because it could, if bombed, blockade uh, Brooklyn's Navy Yard. But there were already other bridges over uh, the East River, so I think that that criticism was, was pretty weak. But because of this, Moses was forced to build a tunnel, the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel, which he actually dismissed, and this is a quote, as a quote, tiled, ventilated, vehicular bathroom, (laughs) smelling faintly of monoxide and inviting claustrophobia. I mean, keep in mind that tunnel was actually a little bit of a marvel in itself, but he was, because he wanted the bridge, he was sort of dismissing it in this rather crude manner. (laughs) So... He knew because of that fight that he had to be politically strategic about his new one, this Narrows Bridge. So he didn't just draw up a plan for a bridge and force it down everybody's throat, but he also drew up first a plan for a tunnel and a bridge, Mm -hmm. saying, we're just going to study both plans and see which one is, is more fiscally prudent. So what do you know? His studies showed that the cost of drilling and building a two-lane tunnel would actually cost more than a two-level, 12-lane suspension bridge. Convenient for him, because that's what he wanted to do anyway. Yeah, it made perfect sense to build the bridge. (laughs) Still, at the War Department, he had to prove that it wouldn't, you know, if it was destroyed, it wouldn't blockade the harbor. He proved that they could cut through the debris within 36 hours. I mean, it's a a cynical way to look at 
construction in the city, to be sure. Yeah, but this was, of course, around the time of World War II, and mm-hmm. people were actually afraid that enemy planes could bomb these things and blockade the entire Navy. Mm-hmm. So, finally, in 1949, after five years of dealing with the War Department, he was granted clearance. However, the fight continued for another six years with the state and city council over the same authority to build there, and, of course, they took into account the residential concerns about building there. So to build some pressure and give energy to the project, uh, Moses got the Triborough Bridge and Tunnel Authority and the Port Authority to sign on together to a sort of pact to build this and hired architect Othmar Amen, who we'll get to in a second, mm-hmm. to design the bridge. And he was very well known and very well regarded. So this sort of gave some new energy to the project. The only problem is that the Triborough Bridge and Tunnel Authority didn't have the money to start the project. So that's where sort of roping in the Port Authority helped out because they gave him some startup money building the original soundings for the tower. But but by then in 1959, the Triborough Bridge, the TBTA actually had enough money to mm-hmm. finance the project. Not an insignificant point considering that this project would eventually cost about $320 million when, right. when all was said and done. So having them you know, drop a few coins in at the beginning was, yeah. was important. Well, they were excited about it too. The Port Authority of New York and New Jersey was excited. They were dreaming of the tolls that it could collect from New Jersey commuters who'd be heading through Staten Island on their way to Brooklyn. Right, um, and of course, like the other three bridges to New Jersey. Now, he chose Othmar Amon to design the bridge over Steinman's Liberty Bridge design because, let's just say, Moses was no fan of intricate, <laughs> ornamental <laughs> Oh, design. sure. And Moses had already worked with Amon on several different bridges around the city. Now, quickly about Amon, because he f- he's a major part of this bridge's history. Othmar Amon was born in Switzerland in 1879 and studied engineering in Zurich before emigrating to New York in 1904. Uh, Early on, he became known really as a scholar and as a critic of bridges, writing critically acclaimed studies about bridges, uh, which got him noticed in in various bridge circles. Sure, the bridge journals. Yes. In 1925, he was working as a bridge engineer for the Port of New York Authority, and he would go on very notably to design both the George Washington Bridge and the Bayonne Bridge, which opened in 1931. Amongst other New York bridges, yes? Yes, because then, well, Robert Moses would hire him to work at the Triborough Bridge and Tunnel Authority, and he would design the Bronx Whitestone Bridge in 1939, uh, the Triborough Bridge, today's Robert F. Kennedy Bridge in 1936, and the Throgs Neck Bridge, which opened in 61. When you think New York bridges, you should think of Othmar Ammon. So Moses has Ammon on his side, and he's ready to move forward. Well, if you want to make an omelet, you need to break a few eggs. And if you want to build a bridge, you might have to... Well, break up a few neighborhoods. Now, we, we know this through the history of Robert Moses' projects that this ha- happens, and has happened more significantly in the Bronx, for instance. Right. But to build the Verrazano, he, he was going to have to clear away a little bit of the neighborhood of Bay Ridge. Because if you look at both sides of the bridge, I mean, at the time of construction, on one side in Brooklyn, it was very dense and residential, packed in there, and on the other side, it was quite rural. But- Bay Ridge had actually been there for a long time. It was actually a, a small village sitting next to Fort Hamilton, which was right near by the water. A sparsely populated farmland for most of its history. Did you know that its original name back in the Dutch days was Yellowhook? 
Um, interesting. Like Red Hook. Um, Together they make Orange Hook. They make an Orange Hook. But uh, they didn't keep that yellow name. By the way, Hook is not like a hook, like a fishing hook, but more H-O-E-K, which is a Dutch word for like a point, you know, like just an area, whatever. Well, in the 1850s, Brooklyn had a yellow fever epidemic. So if you're having yellow fever and your town is Yellow Hook... So they changed the name to Bay Ridge. Now, flash forward 100 years from then, you have a very fertile neighborhood here. Huge mix of ethnicities have moved in here. Second and third generation families of a lot of people who lived and grew up in the Lower East Side. And even today, most identify with the nationalities of Italians and Irish. Very middle class working neighborhood. So these were the people who were living here when the city came down with the news. Oh, I'm sorry, we're going to have to rip apart many of your homes. They organized. There was a Save Bay Ridge coalition petitioning the state, putting up handbills, having protests. They would not go down without a fight. And they would win support, too, popular support, and also among politicians. They successfully lobbied the state legislature, actually, who voted twice for the cancellation of the Verrazano Bridge approaches, but it was vetoed by pro-Moses governor at the time. Nelson Rockefeller, at least for a short time, was one of their supporters. He was running for governor of New York at the time. He would eventually be anti-Moses, but once he did get installed into the job of governor, he reneged a little bit on his support, and he allowed the bridge, obviously, to continue. Now, Steinman briefly comes back into the picture here. So while there's all this upheaval and while there's a, there might be a potential that the bridge is not built, Steinman sort of like wants to throw some confusion here in the mix. <laughs> he actually comes forth with his own bridge idea. Like he said, well, you know what? A bridge does not have to enter here at Bay Ridge. We don't need one that actually goes through Staten Island at all. I have a plan that we can take a bridge and it'll go from Brooklyn all the way through New Jersey, skirting the north side of Staten Island. So not even touching Staten Island at all. Now, Which would be extraordinarily long. <laughs> which would have been the, like, the most, perhaps one of the most hideous things. You never know. Would there even would have... be an on-ramp for Staten Island residents or... I I can't imagine how that would even work. You know, I'm not sure to what stage this actually moved forward because, of course, it ended up being way too costly. In the end, of course, Robert Moses did get his way. Construction began and thousands of Bay Ridge residents were forced out and moved elsewhere. 7,000 residents overall were removed to make way for the approaches. And when you say approaches, it's really, if you look at these aerial shots of the neighborhoods when they were, when they were destroying the houses, clearing the houses, imagine highways just heading to the bridge, which of course we have today, mm-hmm. and all the houses in the way were simply removed. Ripped out. Right. Yes. You can argue that during this construction period, the neighborhood was infused with a new element uh, sure. with 12,000 workers right. who would, most of them, come in through the Brooklyn side to come to work here. So a new flavor flavor of the neighborhood sort of popped up. A little economic boom, too, that would happen during those construction years. So the groundbreaking ceremony was in September 1959. Speeches were made by Moses and celebrations were had. And then the serious work began, the work of sinking the caissons into the ground. Because, of course, on top of those caissons, the pedestals and then the two towers would be built that would hold up the entire bridge. Now, remember the Brooklyn Bridge podcast, Greg, and oh, our yeah. talk well, of well, caissons? I mean, well, ca- and... Caissons are not easy things to put into the ground, if I recall. No. These caissons were enormous. Uh, it's even hard to make sense when you look at the photographs you see. It's hard to understand the scale of these things. Imagine those towers, and then at the base of those towers were these caissons with 66 wells in them. 
Each of these wells were 17 feet in diameter. So it looks like a big honeycomb that's sure, being uh-huh. sunk way down. I mean, much larger, much more ambitious than the Brooklyn Bridge and other bridges. Well, and the technology, time. thankfully, had, mm. had progressed quite a bit since the old days of having guys actually down there and scooping out the dirt as they sunk the caissons further down. Now it was done mostly with cranes and water jets and things like that. And the the two caissons had to be sunk way down, 100 feet below water on the Staten Island side and 170 feet below on the Brooklyn side. After these caissons finally got down there, after two years of digging, they could build these pedestals and then build the towers on top of that. The Brooklyn caisson, by the way, is actually located at the site of Fort Lafayette. Oh, which they demolished, right? It was an old fort that they removed. Now, those two towers look so simple, but actually inside the towers, they contain 10,000 steel cells each that are interwoven and bolted into place with 6 million rivets, if you can imagine that. No. No. <laughs> I've never, Neither can I. I've never seen, like, I've never seen 60 rivets, much less 6 million. Yes, riveting conversation. <laughs> Well, their configuration is so complex that the construction workers actually, when they worked inside, riveting, Mm -hmm. had to carry maps and lights and such with them. Maps inside those towers in case they would get lost. The towers themselves are not even perfectly straight. They taper out a little as they approach the base. They sort of flare out Mm -hmm. just a little bit for structural reasons because they need more support at the bottom, but also to give it a little bit of aesthetic flair. Then, of course, they had to build anchorages off to the side at the bases, which are interesting structures to themselves. Inside of these anchorages, they contain the cables that would be strung between those towers, and they they anchor the cables uh, in cement and give the entire bridge and roadway stability. Then, of course, there are four main cables that hold up the roadway and that are strung between the towers. Each cable is composed of more than 26,000 strands of steel wire, the thickness of a pencil. Finally, with the cables up, they could string the roadway on those cables. There are 71 sections of road that would be barged out from the plant, uh, U.S. Steel's American Bridge Company plant in Jersey City. They barge out these sections of roadway and then haul them up and string them from the cable. And you can imagine as it's being strung, they weren't perfectly straight because they're sort of hanging pieces of a puzzle that didn't become a real straight roadway until the final piece was snapped in place. And each piece was specifically made for just that area of the bridge. And if something happened, if it was scraped or whatever, it would have to go back and be rebuilt. It wasn't like they could just, here comes another part on the barge. Now, I I feel like we're speaking abstractly, Mm -hmm. you know, about this bridge. But all of this is being done. The blood, sweat, and tears. Of real... Thousands of men. men. Yes, Yes, 12,000, as you mentioned before. At the peak of construction, there would be 1,000 on the site at the same time. And most of these guys were were union workers from the area, although some were what we call boomers. Right, they would travel from city to city, and they would specialize in building bridges. And a lot of these... And some skyscrapers, too. Yes, and a lot of these men would have like really impressive resumes of like 12 to 15 like really classic bridges right. throughout the throughout North America and an intimate knowledge and relationship with some of America's most iconic monuments mm-hmm. Of course, there were problems during the construction. There's the tragic death of three people, actually, mm-hmm. who, who died during construction. 
most famously a 19-year-old from Brooklyn named Gerard McKee, who lost his balance while he was spinning cables. And he tried to hold on to a cable by one hand, lost his grip, and plunged to his death while his horrified co-workers were just watching from their positions helplessly. But not to trivialize these three deaths, though, the this was a small number compared to the large number of people who lost their lives building bridges like the Brooklyn Bridge. Sure, that should be noted. You're right. Uh, but because of McGee's death, his co-workers walked off the job that day and, and they went on strike mm-hmm. for a number of days, demanding that they put safety nets underneath the suspension bridge which was not really possible to put a net under the entire thing as they had to lift up supplies and such. The management ended up putting in selected nets underneath areas where men were working and four different men landed in nets at different times. So the the nets did catch people. Did it save people? Okay. Finally, on November 21st, 1964, after five years of construction, just five years, the bridge was ready to open. Considering it's the, uh, need I say, the longest suspension bridge in America, that's, I mean, I feel like that's pretty swift. Did you know that at the opening ceremonies, Robert Moses actually didn't invite the iron workers to attend? So there were all these dignitaries and such, you know, four and a half miles of limousines backed up to the bridge and no guys who actually... Well, I mean, I guess I'm not surprised. (laughs) They had their own ceremony. They went and actually had a memorial ceremony for those who died during the bridge construction. I believe that during his speech, he referred to the Verrazano Narrows Bridge as, quote, a triumph of simplicity and restraint. Yes. Over exuberance. (laughs) Oh, really? Yes. I mean, I just find that, I don't know, there's something about that that's a little almost too understated, considering the the mass, considering, you know, that whole curvature of the earth thing, you know. (laughs) We should also note that the bridge's name was in itself a controversy, because, well, Staten Island wanted to call it the Staten Island Bridge, and Moses sided with them. But going all the way back to the 1950s, the Italian Historical Society of America had already proposed the name to Robert Moses, Verrazano as a gesture of reconciliation to the Italian community that the bridge was partially displacing, <laughs> uh, the state legislature reconsidered the society's request and, and granted it. And thus it became the Verrazano Narrows Bridge. However, there was still controversy about how to even spell Verrazano. <laughs> Apparently even the man himself spelled his own name in a couple different ways. Right. Was it one N or two N's? Long story short, a member of the Italian Historical Society went back to Florence, collected evidence about the spelling of the name, brought it back, and it was spelled with one Z and one N, as it is today. There were actually many, many ideas for names floating around. Like, people resisted this. In fact, during the opening, a lot of radio announcers refused or just conveniently forgot to say the name Verrazano. They just said Staten Island Bridge or whatever. One person even suggested it be named the Commissioner Moses Bridge because of the the contribution that the man brought. And even since this is 1964, there there were suggestions to call it the JFK Bridge. But then that didn't, of course, pan out. And, of course, we now have a JFK airport. So the, the opening day had a procession of antique cars. In fact, there was a traffic jam on the very first day that the bridge was open. The, one thing, well. the one thing you did not have on the bridge were 
cyclists and people who are walking because, of course, there's no pedestrian pathway. And right. there, there's even discussion now of trying to build that over the bridge because, I mean, the views would be unbearably striking right. if you were a pedestrian on there. And Moses countered that the reason that they didn't put in the pedestrian walkway was because, A, nobody would use it. I can just imagine him <laughs> growling that. No one's going to use that. And, B, that it could invite suicides. But couldn't any bridge... Sure. <laughs> so in June of 1969, the lower deck of the bridge opened. So now you had 12 lanes of traffic. Staten Island did benefit from the opening of the bridge. I mean, between 1940 and 1950, the population of the borough grew 9%. From 1960 to 1970, with just the promise of the bridge opening, and then, of course, with the early years of the bridge opening, it grew by 25%. It's currently almost half a million people who currently live there. And when the bridge was announced, there were only 220,000 people who lived there. So a significant effect on the borough that, I mean, that, that the bridge had. In June of 1973, the bridge was actually slightly damaged in a ship collision. There were these two vessels, one the Esso Brussels and the other one the CVC Witch. Mm. They both struck each other just north of the bridge, igniting 31,000 cans of crude oil. Many men died in this terrible collision, but the wreckage of the, f- of the ship, this flaming, frightening-looking wreckage, floated down and actually floated underneath the bridge and even singed the the bottom of the deck. Uh, on June 28th of 1976, in anticipation of New York's bicentennial celebration, the city decided that they were going to unfurl the world's largest American flag. And they were going to have it right here on the Verrazano Narrows Bridge, which made so much sense because sure. there were going to be boats coming in and out and everything. It would be 366 by 193 feet. Uh, was the size of it. It was one and a half tons. On June 28th, they decided that they were going to have a test run. They unfurled this gigantic flag and unfortunately, just the winds like the, that the, the, the right. bridge creates that just happened, they were so strong that they put up the flag and within just a few hours, it was r- ripped to shreds and flew out into the water. Needless to say, the flag makers learned a lot from this particular lesson. Probably Athmar Amin could have told them in, in advance what was going to happen. Yeah, I'm sure he could have. Now, the same year was the very first year of the start of the New York Marathon on the bridge. Like, this is now the starting point uh, for the marathon. And, of course, it's one of the most classic images of the bridge, of course, seeing these thousands of people running across it, of course. The following year came its best-known film appearance in the movie Saturday Night Fever. A lot of the principal scenes are in Bay Ridge. And on top of being an excellent film with excellent music, there are tons of beautiful New York scenes. And of course, that pivotal scene at the end of the movie, mm. which still like, which scared me as a kid, um, where they're like, you know, I'm not going to spoil Don't anything, spoil. but there's uh, something so tragic that happens on the bridge. But it's a, definite, a movie you need to see if you haven't seen it, of course. I like the fact that the Queen Mary 2, which is one of these grand ocean liners, that, in fact, its first voyage was in 2004, they had to design a special funnel for the top just for this bridge because it docks when it comes into New York. In fact, it was just here, right. I believe just last week or something, they had a big fireworks celebration and everything. And the Queen Mary's predecessor, the Queen Mary the mm-hmm. uh, was taken into account her 
girth and size in the designs of the original bridge. So they have a symbiotic relationship, these yes. boats and this bridge. You know, I would say, what do you think the best place to see this bridge, to really get nice views of this bridge? Personally, I would say along the Belt Parkway. I was just going to say along the Belt Parkway or on a bicycle if you're cycling along. Yes. Um, so that's, along you know, the park, though. I mean, and of course, any place in Bay Ridge. I mean, now it's it's a permanent part of the fabric of the neighborhood from every street you can almost get a striking view and of course on the Staten Island side I would recommend visiting Fort Wadsworth because it's it's owned by the Park Service and it's also beautiful there too. If you'd like to get more information about the bridge there was a very intriguing book that was published the year the bridge was opened in 1964. It was a book called The Bridge by Gay Talese who was a prominent magazine nonfiction writer. This is a work of red meat journalism. It talks about the residents of Bay Ridge who got removed from their houses, and it talks a lot about the boomers, the the men who came to work on the bridge, telling personal individual stories. It's a great book. Uh, I, I believe it's still in print. There was a a new version that came out in 2003 that he wrote a foreword for, so I would check that out if I were you. Now, being a photogenic part of the New York skyline, I will have lots of pictures of this on the blog BoweryBoysPodcast.com, and I even have a couple of videos, of, oh. including one from Saturday Night Fever oh. that features the bridge prominently. Also, check us out on Facebook. We have a nice community going on there, and we'll be post additional extra stuff on there as well. So thanks for joining us on our History of the Arizona Narrows Bridge. We'll be back here next month. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Williams during the March Spring Sale, March 15th through the 25th, and get 35% off paints and stains with prices starting at $28.92. That means 35% off our most popular color family, blue. Psychologists have found it to be soothing and relaxing, which makes it especially great for bedrooms and bathrooms. And of course, get 35% off all of our other colors. Stop the sale online or visit your neighborhood Sherwin Williams store. Click the banner to learn more. Retail sales only, some exclusions apply. See store for details.